0: All right. It is. Uh, it's good to see your faces. Welcome back to those of you who are traveling. If your parents, um, I'm sorry. So um, <laughs> we're going to dig right in, and let's um, let's look at the scripture today. It's going to be Acts chapter 12, verses 19 uh, to 13:3. We'll put it up on the screen. You can follow there, and I'll read from there. So we're all looking at the same words at this point. And this is what it says. And after Herod searched for him, this is uh, Peter and them, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, that's it for today. Um, if you're just back, we're in the middle and have been for some time of a journey through the book of Acts. And when you commit to preaching through a book of the Bible, sometimes you get weird passages, and sometimes you get fun ones. And today we have one of each. <laughs> now, the weird part is Herod Agrippa's death. It's a little weird. Um, I, at one point, uh, it's a bit confusing because there's like three people named Herod in the Bible, um, and they kind of move around, and you're never quite sure which one it is. This is I, And I actually made this mistake before in the past preaching, but this Herod is Herod Agrippa, and he's not the Herod, at the same as Herod Antipas, who was the one who killed John the Baptist just before this. And Herod Agrippa, I think his name is like Marcus Julius Agrippa, and he takes on the name Herod of his grandfather. Don't worry, there's no quiz later. Anyway, um, he's he's reasonably well-liked. And uh, one of the things he does is he's just from a really awful family. And he's going to use his Roman connections to please his Jewish constituency. He's got Roman connections, Roman power, and so he's thinking, the Jews will like it if I kill James. I'll kill James. The usual will like it if I imprison Peter, I'll imprison Peter." And so he's positioning himself for the sake of his, the sense of his kingship, his peace, and what he's going to do in his constituencies, to use his power in these ways. Now, um, we get to this passage, and it's really weird. So there's a civil dispute between Tyre and Sidon. Who really cares what's going on with them? This dude, Blastus, why is he named? And, but what a great name. These Bible names that don't get pulled into modern culture. Our new baby, Blastus, right? <laughs> We get a description of his fabulous sense of fashion. He dons his royal robes, right? You've got to picture him in purple and gold and looking really hot, or whatever they want to think about. Anyway, um, <laughs> he gives a great speech, and they don't tell us what the speech is. They just say, it was a great speech, right? And then he gets flattered. What's new, right? You get flattery is pretty common. And then they tell us about his death. And I just want you to note that it says that he's eaten by worms and then he died. Not that he died and then was eaten by worms, Uh, and that this appears to be some kind of instantaneous worm death. That's an awful, (laughs) this is awful, and this is a very, very weird passage, and other than for reasons that it happened, why is this here? Good question. So right next to it, we get this really cool passage, which is the commissioning of Saul and Barnabas for ministry. It's cool. It's terribly exciting. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is these three verses at the beginning of chapter 13. We get a picture of Antioch, and this is where, as Jesse talked a couple weeks ago, the the believers were first called Christians at Antioch, Christianos, little Christs. Like, I look at you, and you remind me of this guy, Jesus, and it's annoying, and so I'm going to call you an insult word to remind me of him. It was was an insult to be Christianos. (laughs) You look like this Christ guy. It's not a nice name. But they were like, hey, you're right. We are like little Christs. And we've owned it ever since. Christian's a great word in that sense. And so um, you get, and I love this, you get the all-star roster of Antioch's leadership. This group of prophets, right? Barnabas, right? His name means son of encouragement. Like he walks in the room and people already feel better. They're like, yeah, Barnabas is here. Good stuff is going to happen. He's an encourager. You get Simeon called Niger, likely a black man, a man of African descent in this leadership team. You get Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene's in North Africa. It's, um, it's modern-day Libya. So you have a North African guy. You have Menaean, who's probably a wealthy Roman. It says that he grew up with Herod Agrippa. Uh, and Herod grew up in Rome as part of a royal court. So this is a wealthy aristocrat as part of this leadership team. And then you got Saul, also called Paul, former Pharisee and now Christian powerhouse. And this is the leadership team at Antioch. And I think that's exciting. Wow, to be part of a team like this, to be part of a group where this kind of stuff is happening, and they're first called Christians where these people are in ministry together. I like that. And so I get very excited thinking about this. Now, they have a worship service, and God speaks to them, and he says, set apart Saul and Barnabas. I got a job for them. Now, there's a bonus piece of cool in this, which is that in this moment, it says they're, they're in service to the Lord, and the Greek word is they're doing, they're doing some leitourgos liturgy, um, and if, if you know this, you know liturgy from kind of modern language of that we have the liturgy of the church and, you know, the kind of things that go on. Anyway, in the ancient world, and especially the Greek world, if you, if you had a liturgy, it was like your assignment for public service. And it was both a blessing and a curse. Like you could be in the forum and you could receive a liturgy and it meant that you had to like support a boat for the year, right? Or you had to finance a festival or you were in charge of managing uh, the yearly plays. This is your civil service that you get responsible for. And this is what they're doing, and in the form of the church, Paul and Barnabas get the civil service of the kingdom of God, which also implies that the stuff we're doing here is for the civil service out there. It's not for us. It's for the work that goes on out of the room, which is good to think about. Okay, that's the bonus. I like to think, or I like to reflect, that this all-star team, if I were on an all-star team, I would want to keep that team to myself. I would do everything I could to incentivize them to stay and be present and have this kind of like inward focus and do these things. We're going to make this a team that's going to last forever. And the Spirit of God says, take your two best and send them. And I think this is a wonderful picture of how radically different the kingdom of God is. We're always sending out our best to go do other work. And actually, mission is going to dominate the remainder of the book of Acts. Uh, Saul and Barnabas and then just Paul become the driving force of what follows for the rest of the book. And not only that, Paul's missionary journeys become the source of the letters that provide so much of our teaching. And so this moment here, when God says, send them out for me, is the beginning of pretty much all that we have here today. It's exciting in some ways. So I love this passage. Now, what do we do with a combination of passages like this? Herod, eaten by worms and died. Saul and Barnabas, off into glory. Well, we've got a few options. We can skip what we don't like right? Uh, We could have opted not to read those few verses and just read the fun bits. And then you're saved until later one day you go back and read your own Bible and realize, what's this doing here? I never heard this when I was in church, and a lot of people do this. Uh, We could focus so keenly on what we do like that just maybe you'll forget the parts that are weird, right? We do this in the Bible too. Like there's some weird passages in the Bible, like people get killed, a lot of people die, weird things happen, but we're like, yeah, but the Holy Spirit, right? (laughs) Right? If we can get you on the Holy Spirit, then maybe you'll overlook the weird stuff. Maybe that's not so good either. Uh, We can force the weird into convoluted interpretations. Oh, it doesn't really mean that. didn't really. It's it's an allegory, right, for how we're supposed to. And we can interpret our way out of it. Or there's probably other options as well. Or what we're going to try to do today, you can attempt to find a relationship between them. Is there a relationship between these? And I think there is. The Bible regularly utilizes comparison as a method of self-interpretation. It doesn't tell you what to think about things, but it'll put two stories side by side, so you have to draw some conclusions on your own. This is extremely, extremely common. I'll give you a few examples briefly. In the book of Matthew, the figures of Peter, the apostle who denies Jesus, and Judas, the apostle who, de- who uh, betrays Jesus, are directly compared. Both of them have these actions. Both of them repent. Remember Peter? Here's the crow, uh, the the rooster crow, and he runs off and weeping. Judas tries to return the money. He can't, and he runs off weeping. And then Judas, of course, his end is one way, and Peter's end is the other way. And Matthew seems to be saying, what kind of disciple are you going to be? You've got to do the work. Matthew's not going to tell you this. You've got to see the comparison. Another one, uh, and I'll warn you ahead, it's a little weird. Uh, You guys know the story of Joseph, right? He goes down to Egypt. And then he's a slave, and he's working for this guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife is like, hey, hey, Joseph. And she runs after him, (laughs) and then she she grabs his cloak, and then he runs away and leaves his clothes behind, and he's naked and running off, but he's pure. And you're like, okay, interesting story. Well, what story's told right next to it? The really weird story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, right? And she shows up, and she's like, pretends to be a prostitute, and he's like, hey, I'll use this prostitute. Right, And she's like, what will you give me? And he gives her a piece of his clothing as a sign that she owes him something. And we have two stories of sexually weird moments where clothing is used in exchange, and they're used to make a comparison. You have to draw the conclusion. Text isn't going to make that for you. You can also look much, much more nicely, I suppose, is the stories of David and Saul in First Samuel. Saul's the king. He's got the power. Everything kind of looks towards him. David's weak. But he trusts in the Lord, and there's a comparison between the two. The book book doesn't make the comparison for you. It lets you do it. And I think something similar is going on between Herod's death and the church in Antioch. And in this case, I think we have a situation of comparison between kinds of leadership. In Herod, we have a solitude of power. In Antioch, we have a community of service. In Herod, we have the pleasure and the trappings of power. In Antioch, we have a spirit of obedience and fasting. In Herod, we have the flattery of human ideas. In Antioch, we have the voice of the Holy Spirit. In Herod, we have the monotony of earthly power. In Antioch, we have the diversity of the kingdom. In Herod, we have the dead end of human effort, literally dead. And in Antioch, we have a vision of the ever-advancing kingdom of God. But the kingdom was moving on. And so I want to take some time now, and I want to break this down in a little bit more for us. I want to lay out three ways of looking at the contrast between these kinds of leadership and Herod style and Antioch style, and we're going to talk about the image of power, what does power look like, we're going to talk about decision-making in power, how does power execute its authority, and we're going to talk about the resources in power, how does power and how does leadership view the resources around it, and let's see what comes of this. So the first, I said, is image. In Herod, we get this lovely image of earthly power. This is kind of what earthly power looks like. He arrives in his royal apparel. He's puffed up, he's blown up. He's probably wearing, you know, purple cloth was extremely rare, which is why purple is the color of royalty. Uh, gold is a rare metal, which is why it's the metal for royalty. Uh, and so he's probably wearing very expensive, nice-looking stuff. Uh, certainly not what his followers would have on their bodies. He's going to seat himself on literally the judgment seat. They say throne, but he sits on a bema. A bema is a seat that is is the place for adjudication of authority. In the ancient world, only the judge sat down. The people who are judged have to stand and face judgment. This is why we stand at the judgment, uh, because only God. This is why God sits on the throne and Jesus sits at his right hand. He's the authority. He's the judge. This is a sign of his exaltation that he gets to sit in this way. Kings sit. Plebeians stand. So really, the role should be reversed. I should be sitting, and all of you should be still. (laughs) They tell us that people from a long way off have inconvenienced themselves to come to Herod to get their problem solved. Power is localized in this one figure, this one person. They can't get things solved where they are. They have to come to him to get it solved. He gives a speech, and everybody has to listen attentively. I mean, everybody has to listen. Have you guys seen those really, really terrifying photos or videos of the generals in North Korea listening to long speeches? Right? They have to stay awake and applaud the whole time because they have to show that they are, uh, they're, they're obsequious to this image of power. And we get an image of this. If you want power, you have to get near the power. And you've got to make power like you. And you've got to do things that the power wants. You're kind of bargaining. You're always crafting, trying to make things work in certain ways. I can't help but think personally that very often our images of the church look a great deal like these images of earthly power. I think that's often the case. We get big-name churches and big-name movements that are interested in bringing glory to themselves. They're really, really competent at branding, at, at, at crafting a kind of social media currency to make themselves look a certain way, to draw people to them. And so power is centralized and is focused on themselves. They want to look good in the rich robes and currencies of social media. I was thinking about this, and I thought about a passage from the other Bible, uh, Anthony Trollope's Barchester Towers. For those of you who haven't read it yet, oh joy. Uh, Trollope makes a comment about preachers that I think all preachers need to listen to, and I don't have anyone in mind specifically. (laughs) Anyone in mind, I'm standing in front of... Uh, Trollope says this, he says, "In here I must make a protest against the pretense so often put forward by the working clergy that they are overburdened by the multitude of sermons to be preached. We are too fond of our own voices, and a preacher is encouraged in the vanity of making his heard by the privilege of a compelled audience." You have to listen to me because you're here. Well, some of you don't. You could do your own thing. He goes on, and it's great. His sermon is the pleasant morsel of his life, his delicious moment of self-exaltation. I have preached nine sermons this week, said a young friend of mine the other day, with a hand languidly raised to his brow, the picture of an overburdened martyr. Nine this week, seven last week, four the week before. I have preached 23 sermons this month. It is really too much. Too much indeed, said I, shuddering too much for the strength of anyone. Yes, he answered meekly, indeed it is. I am beginning to feel it painfully. Would, said I, you could feel it. Would that you could be made to feel it. But he never guessed that my heart was wrung for the poor listeners. (laughs) Sometimes we accrue, our images of power are focused so much on the figure of a celebrity minister who holds the audience captive uh, by the power of that personality, and this looks too much to me like Herodian power, and not enough like Antioch power. So Antioch, we get a different vision. Um, there is no clear leader in Antioch. it 's a committee, a committee of believers who are prophets in community together. they 're really not interested in making themselves look good. in fact, they 're too busy fasting and in prayer. This is what they do on a regular basis. Uh, Their currency, the currency of the kingdom, is prayer itself and not a kind of social currency. They're not interested in, in flattery or in kind words. They're trying to find out what God thinks. And my favorite part of this is that there's an amazing diversity of leadership. There's Jews, Libyans, Africans, Romans. This is the whole range of empire represented in this. It's not one wealthy, fabulous guy. It's a group who are doing these things together. And I wonder what it will look like for churches to attempt to lead more like this. I'm not sure that I've encountered many churches that do do this in these full ways. And this is not a criticism of you all in this way. It's interesting. What is the image of leadership? I was reminded this morning also that um, how many of you know the name A.W. Tozer? Okay? A few of you. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so pleased. Tozer is reported. He shows up at his office in the morning and he's wearing his suit, because that's what did back in the old day. He shows up at his office, he removes his suit. He put on his ratty prayer trousers, and he spends the morning in prayer. He had trousers to pray in (laughs) because he spent so much time every day in prayer. And his leadership would show up at his office and find him on his face in his office. This is not an image of earthly power and action, is it? It's a very different image of power. It's power infused by the Spirit of God. This is the kind of power I think we want. All right, image of power. Second is decision-making. How are resources appropriated in the world versus the kingdom? Well, in the world, um, we have one guy with all the power. Herod's it. He makes the decision. Uh, We get this bottleneck of authority. Uh, You have to have the right power in the room to make decisions, don't you? can't make decisions without it because you have to get Herod's voice. That's just why people have to travel from Tyre and Sidon now to get to him. And it's it's kind of serious because they said their food comes from his part of the world. They're hostages to his power. The world treats its people like hostages in terms of how they have to get things. They try to sway him with flattery, which is, you know, they're going to butter his ego, so he'll do what they want. Flattery is is the use of um, true words for false purposes. Right? You're going to speak true things, but you're going to try and get something else by them. It's all kind of squirrely and sideways, and it's not direct or clear. There's a monotony of authority, In a room where the person of authority is going to give a long speech, again, you have to listen. And you just feel these people, oh, what a great speech, you know. Probably wasn't. They didn't record it. And then they recite that this is the voice of a God. This is the voice of highest earthly power. And for them, this is the best they've got. And it's pretty hopeless. If Herod is your God, if Herod is your authority and your power and your source, oh, man, you're stuffed. (laughs) If your hope is an earthly power, there's so little hope for you. So it's very much a dead end. Now in Antioch, we get the opposite decision, that of kingdom decision making. Once again, there's no clear leader, although there is a clear body of leadership. It's clear that there's a group who are leading together. You get a very clear sense in Antioch that God is the one who is in charge. And it's the same God in Antioch as he is in Jerusalem. So there's no traveling to hear his voice. You don't have to, there's no bottleneck of authority. The church global has access to the same spirit. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? That we have this power. Really important to me, Antioch is in prayer and fasting before there's a crisis. Nothing's going wrong. And they're praying and fasting because that's just how they do things. And very often for us in the modern world, things go wrong and then we pray and fast. Right? Let's have a meeting of... Uh, sorry. Let's have a meeting of prayer and fasting over Brexit. We should have been praying over prayer and fasting two years before Brexit happened. And then we're just ready to see what's the Spirit going to say to us about this new situation? How are we going to respond? And that's the disposition of the church. And this church has been praying, so I'm not saying we're not praying. Uh, Life in the Spirit is just the way of things. It's not a special situation. Now, um, the other thing is that these decisions are made for the most part publicly. Uh, sometimes you get these private decisions and private power where like secret subcommittees make decisions and then they kind of trickle out into the open. And it's the spirit in a meeting who says, I want you to do these things. And they're all like, oh, I guess, I guess we're going to deal with this now. And the goal in all of this is not to flatter someone to receive the voice of a God, but to hear the voice of God in the spirit. The most direct parallel between these two passages, this is the voice of God And then in Antioch, no, this is actually the voice of God. We hear God's voice spoken, and he's spoken by means of their surrender, which is, I think, what we're called to. As I thought about this, I realized that I think many people approach God in prayer with a vision of earthly power in their minds. Many people come to God thinking that he's the one with power, that we have to travel to really meet with him, right? We've got to go to, like, a conference or a meeting or a place where the Spirit's really going to be present to hear him. So there's a kind of centralized sense of God's power. And then, and this is the most insidious, that somehow we've got to flatter God with our good deeds or, better yet, to pray the right words in prayer to get him to answer you, right? Right? And so we show up in prayer and we say, God, look at all the good things I've done. I really deserve to have you do this for me. Ready for the twisted one? Oh, God, I'm such an awful worm. I really don't deserve to have you do this for me. But because I know I'm a worm and don't deserve this, I deserve to have you do this for me. (laughs) If I make myself look bad enough, God will be kind to me. Both are flattery. Both are partly true things spoken to get God to do something else for us. And I think very often we come to God with a vision of his, we think he's like an earthly tyrant. He's not, he's in our midst. And he's heard through our fasting and our obedience and in community. This is not in the script, but I'll say this briefly. I find that God will never say something directly to me that he can say through someone else. He loves agency. He loves to use Rachel to speak to me. Because then, when I say, wow, that was God, Rachel goes, wow, God spoke. And then he's, he's bigger between us. He's going to use agency. And if you think you're a special snowflake who deserves to have God spoken to you personally, forget it. Get in the church, and you'll hear the voice in community. Okay? I am preaching it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Decision making. Decision making. How power is how power allocates these these decisions. And lastly is resources. We had image of power, decision-making power, and resources. In Herod, I think we have a picture of worldly resource appropriation. He's wealthy, he sits in power, everyone comes to him. All the people, the people who need their food have to come to him. Everything is centralized in this way. The attention of chamberlains, blastus, of cities, and attending crowds is focused in the person of Herod. The wealth of the kingdom comes back for the service of the king, and it is the opposite in Antioch. We're sending out our best. It is not a circle where things just bend back in and Resupport and get repurposed for the use of the church. No, we discover what needs to be done, and we act by sending out our resources in these ways. And I think this is a chastisement on many visions of ministry. Uh, In my research, I've been reading um, this figure, 20th century figure named Charles Williams, and uh, he writes some poetry about King Arthur, which is very weird. So uh, if you're like, ooh, Arthurian poetry, just be warned, it's weird. But in one moment, he talks about uh, the coronation of Arthur. And Arthur comes, and all the knights of the realm are there at Camelot, and in a key moment, Lancelot Lancelot escorts Guinevere up to the throne. And in that moment, uh, Arthur looks out over all that he has, and a thought enters his head. He says, does the king exist for the kingdom, or does the kingdom exist for the king? And in William's thinking, this is the moment that Camelot's doomed. Does, Does my function exist for you? Or does your function exist for my benefit? This is to reorder the world. It's a very hellish way of looking at things. Because it turns you into things that can do things for me. It turns resources into things that can benefit my agenda and my ego and my world. Or Jim's agenda, Jim's ego, Jim's world, right? <laughs> right. We, we, can, we begin to see people as things that can be used rather than people through whom God will, might speak to me. And resources that God may be sending out to do things. It's a heavenly mindset versus a hellish one. We have other examples of this, um, specifically in when David in the Old Testament takes a census and he receives a severe rebuke from God from taking a census. Because as king, he's looking at his people and he's thinking, how much money can I get from you? What kind of an army can I form with you? And suddenly, they serve him rather than he serving them. And it's a key moment in his kingship. So we have two pictures of leadership. We have earthly leadership that highlights the personality of the big leader, focuses power on um, individual superstars, and makes decisions by flattery and by swaying of those superstars, and it resor- its resources bend back to sustain its own organizations. I have been part of organizations like that. I bet you have too. It's just not pleasant. It's hard to be an honest person in a world like that. Kingdom leadership highlights the diversity, com- diversity of a community in the spirit. It makes decisions by a public pattern of surrender and prayer, and its resources are repurposed for the benefit of the kingdom. We're not ashamed to send away our best if they're called. As a kind of final and bonus reflection, I realized that uh, for some people I think our image of God as a whole is poisoned by this image of worldly power. We think that he's the big cheese that we have to please to get what we want. And we think that he's interested in decision-making, like he, we just have to kind of close the decisions and everything's a secret and nothing gets to be known. And we think that, well, he's just kind of interested in making himself look good. This is really what it's all about, and we're just trying to, trying to do our best, and we make him look bad, and we get all these kind of things. When, in fact, I think God is much more like Antioch, in which... We have a trinity, a shared identity within God, something strange and yet represented in the shared leadership at Antioch. He shares power and he shares agency with us. He actually, he doesn't bully you into things, he's actually kind of like, so what do you think? Let's figure this out together. And that's What kind of a God is this who wants us to join him in things and doesn't want to bully us into things? He really doesn't care about flattery. He's not interested. He thinks it's rubbish. There's a great illustration I won't use. Ask me later. And he always repurposes his kingdom resources for mysterious benefits of others. He's got the long game in mind. He's thinking about, like, oh, this is going to bless somebody. I know it. And when you get to bless that person, he blesses you. It's this cycle. It's amazing. And God is, however, in the deed of making, in the business of making himself look good. This has to be admitted. God likes to make himself look good. The irony is that he makes himself look good by making you look good. You carry his reputation with you when you go into the world. If you are Christianos, you are carrying the image of Christ with you. And now he's going to make himself look good by making you look good, and then you make him look good, and then he makes you look good, and it just everybody gets to look good in the kingdom, because he's interested in bringing people up to him, not in making them small. Um, We are now at a time when we get to pray together, and we get to um, maybe respond a little bit. And I thought about lots of things I could say, and I landed on only one, which is this, which is that maybe there's some of you today who think that you have to bargain to hear from God and that you needed to be at a certain, I don't know, moral level or a certain spiritual level to be worthy of God's voice, and you don't. And I want to encourage you, if you are hungry to hear God speak this morning especially, just to receive his touch or to say, I'm here, God, I want to know what you have for me, to come forward and receive prayer. And uh, KV members, uh, members who are part of home groups who've been trained to pray will come, lay hands on you, and pray for the voice of God to be heard in your life this morning. So I'm going to have Jesse come on up. Jesse, are you going to headband up for this? Or are we going to? He's got it. Preach through sweat. Okay. Uh, would you please stand? I'm going to pray for us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are not like the world. I thank you that there is so much hope in your kingdom. I thank you that you've set power on its head. You who are power set power on its head. Um, would you open those paths and doorways for us to draw near to you, to experience your kingdom the way you've designed it? Um, I want to lift up my prayer for this community right now as we, um, as we this church, seek your will for a a different location for our, our vineyard center and as we seek your placement lord for a fresh location for the storehouse lord these are your things kv is yours the vineyard center is yours storehouse is yours and you have a home for it would you reveal that to these people and reveal it to us, Lord, as we seek your face. You've got a plan. We're just waiting on your plan, Lord. Now, as we enter into time of your spirit and worship, would you speak to us? Speak to us quietly. Speak to us sweetly. Speak to us strongly. Um, make yourself known. So come, receive prayer. Hear from the Lord. If you need to touch anything, uh, common receipt.